Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, guys, episode three, we are starting with one of the myths and legends of the field of behavior analysis. He hardly needs an introduction. Dr. Merrill Winston, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Happy to be here. It feels it feels like a place where I can be comfortable. That's what matters most. Your your comfort, Merrill, is is the most important thing My here. Comfort your safety level. Yes. Yeah, um, Consider this a safe place. Yeah, right. Um <laughs> <laughs> to be played at unsafe places all around the world. Uh-huh. Um, yes. Um, yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to have you, Meryl. Meryl, if you don't mind, I think that you and me are going to tag team and we're going to go right for the jugular here. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners can't see his face, but I think I just caught him off guard a little bit, which right. is Right. No, 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 no. No, I'm fine with that. So, um, yeah, how do you how do you want to start on this one? I, I saw an interesting post on LinkedIn just this morning, actually, that's just along the same lines of what we're talking about. Um, I love that as a segue. Let's start with that. Uh, yeah, it was just, well, I mean, it, it was a, it was a plea for um, uh, terminology. And I get it, too, because mm. I try not to I try to not use it either just because there's certain things that just sound bad no matter how you say them mm-hmm. or no matter how you meant them. Yeah. Uh, it just because of people's condi- conditioning history, right? right? That's why, even if it's a good metaphor, I never start a comparison with even Hitler. Okay. I mean, right. that would be no matter how that ends up or what the context is, it never sure. goes over great. Nobody goes, oh, you're right. I never thought about. Um, so, like, there's certain things that like just sound bad no matter how you did them. And this right. is about like low and high functioning. And I've mm-hmm. used it before and we've used it as a shorthand. And yeah, I don't even like saying it. I usually just like saying verbal, nonverbal, tiny repertoire, big repertoire. Sure. Um, how dare you say someone has a small repertoire? Everybody has a large repertoire, yes. um, which, which <laughs> is not the case. Some people have tiny ass, little nothing repertoires, okay? Minuscule. Minuscule. And yeah. so, you know, you don't have to say low if you don't want to. You know, you could sure. say tiny. Does tiny make you feel better? Then say, okay, tiny repertoire. Giant repertoire, but but um, yeah, and it was the um, it was more uh, oh gosh, yeah, it, it was it was that that's fine, but the point being that there's always going to be something somebody doesn't like about yep. how we treat or speak about those with uh, who have. I'm going to say it this way. I, as you know already, I, I don't like, and it doesn't matter what Meryl likes. I, 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 and I don't even give a shit if anybody cares about what I like. Sure. I only talk about it because I think that some people may be confused. And it's pretty clear to me what's going on, but this is the way I like to talk about it. Like the, um, the whole neuro, the neurodiverse thing. This yes. is, I've been in the field for uh, long enough to say I've been in the field long enough, you know, like, right. so it, it's always been something and nothing was ever good enough. And here's the thing, no matter what you say, 
mm-hmm. or no matter what label you use for a group of people, yeah, you're separating those people from other people. You're and categorizing so- and propagating you're, tribalism. You're, you're making them more different on purpose. And I'm going to pull yes. a page from Maya Angelou's book. And that is, we are more alike than we are unalike. And yep. when we have things like, I'm neurodiverse. Oh, I'm just neurotypical. Uh, right. We start we start to make differences. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it, it is, the biggest problem with humans is our identification of groups. It leads to racism. It -hmm. leads to bigotry. It leads to discrimination. It leads to scapegoating. You can't scapegoat a group of people if you ain't got a group of people. So it, it all begins with a group, and then we name that group. And just like when you take in a stray, once you name it, you're screwed. It's yours forever. You're emotionally <laughs> invested. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not It's not just true of pets. That's why I'm saying it. Yes. Once you give it a name, mm-hmm. now it's a movement. Yeah. Neurodiverse. Meryl, do you think that the terms neurodivergent and, and an attempt to separate people between neurodivergent and neurotypical has become a little bit of a rhetorical weapon? Um, yeah, people weaponize stuff all the time. And and like one of the arguments is it's the same. I love using medical analogies, but that's like, you know, I am neurodivergent and you're not. So you shouldn't be saying what's good for me because I'm the one who is it. And that's like the cancer patient saying to the, to the most pr- uh, prominent oncologist on the planet, Look, I know you had like buku train and all that business, but I'm the one with the mutating cells. I think I know what medication's going to work for me. You got cancer? Do you have cancer, doctor? Oh, that's what I thought. It's the lived experience argument. Um, yeah, and the thing is, we're more susceptible to these as behavior analysts because our training is special, but here's the problem. Everyone has experience changing behavior. Everyone does not have experience taking out an appendix. Yeah. Okay, and so the thing is... They t- physicians tend not to get attacked because their knowledge is so highly specialized or viewed right. as the ge- by the general public as so highly specialized when many times what we do is viewed as not only not highly specialized, but just wrong. Yeah. So, you know, it's just like, well, you may be a behavior analyst, but, you know, I've been a school teacher for 25 years. And mm-hmm. it's like, look, the Grand Canyon's been dealing with water for millions of years, but it can't tell you shit about it. Okay. Right. <laughs> it, it, all right. It's, it's interacted with water for millions of years. It, you know, it has, it's very familiar with water. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, but that, that doesn't mean it knows what to do with it or it can make hydroelectric plants on its own or anything like that. Well, it's also completely counter to the demand, because if we're claiming that we are somehow medically or clinically different from another group, we are starting to request all of these forms of special treatment. But at the same time, if we're not allowing anybody to speak to us that doesn't share that same clinical diagnosis, where does that leave clinical treatment then? Right. It, 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 I mean, <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same kind of problem. Um, it, the other thing is I think about the term. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about the neuro part. First of all, it yeah. was used primarily with autism, and originally yeah. autism, ASD, mm-hmm. ADHD. Yeah. And here's the thing that's, that's interesting. 
there are theories about every mental disorder, uh, everything in the DSM. There's right. theories about all of them, what they are, where they come from, what the chemical imbalance is, that there's something different about our brain. Theories abound, okay, about all of them, okay, um, uh, regardless of what they are. And it, when, they, when people say, well, this person's neurodiverse, first of all, one is, uh, as you mentioned in your other podcast, people are trying to avoid discrimination and bias against those with special needs, which th- that's fantastic. That's great. There shouldn't be that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. But um, one of the other things they're doing is they are denying that, th- that this, um, the constellation of behaviors and lack of behaviors that we call autism, mm-hmm. they're denying that there are problems with it. it they're gifts. They're that unique they're, they're gifts. And so the thing is, it, de- it depends on when, when we talk about this, you can't talk about the, the entire person. You can't say the diagnosis is a gift. The person is a gift. It's behaviors and non-behaviors. And so mm-hmm. you could look at things and say something like, when you're saying divergent, first of all, when something diverges, it diverges left or right or up or down from a mm-hmm. center. That's what divergent means. So here's normal, whatever the fuck that is. So here's normal. And then people say divergent, it's awesome. It's, it's awesome if you're talking about IQ and it diverges from normal, okay? That's called awesome. Now, what if it's something that diverges from normal and it's mean length of utterance. Like my mean length of utterance is like 537, if you ever heard me speak. But I, I'm not sure. But what if your mean length utterance, your MLU, is one word? Well, that's right. well below, right? right? So both people are neurodivergent. But one has diverged five standard deviations above the norm. And one has diverged five deviations below the norm. And here's the thing. They're both not equally awesome. And so one of the things that's happened in the neurodivergent movement, and by the way, politicians do this better than anyone. It's what they do professionally now, and that is conflation of concepts. So what they're doing here is they're conflating two concepts. By the way, they do it with uh, uh, escape extinction too. I'll go through that one. But the concepts they're conflating are uh, getting rid of bias and blame. We don't want to blame the individual, right? And we don't want to have bias. So they are uh, conflating right? Uh, treating people nicely uh, uh, with awesomeness. So you ex- they're conflating acceptance and awesomeness, to quote Sterling Archer. Awesomeness! Um, that, that they are, that they are, they're conflating the two. So um, look, guys, it's not 1970. In 1970, there was no acceptance. There were journal articles that were teaching people who were retarded how to walk with a normal gait so no one would know that they had a disability. That was the 70s. And -hmm. people actually had to come back and write articles like the right of persons with developmental disabilities to eat too many donuts and take a nap. Right. That grew out of people over-controlling the shit out of people with special needs, trying to make them exactly like everyone else so people would not have bias against them. And what I say now is it's 20 fucking 22. No one, no one gives a shit that anyone's child is self-stimming in an unusual manner in public. Here's what they care about. 
not getting shot, not having a truck driven through their parade. This is like what people care about in 2022. The last thing on their mind is a person with a diagnosis doing something a little odd. That is the last thing on anybody's mind in 2022. We accept stuff that is so much far from the norm that this is now relatively nothing. And we have been, we have been for a very long time. And I think if you ask anybody now with a mental illness or even a disability, does stigma adversely affect your functioning in your day? I don't think stigma would fall anywhere on their list of issues or challenges that they face. No, you know, I, 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 I don't think so. I mean, it might, but see, even now, if you think about it, when you look at TV commercials, um, I, I'm not even going to say when I was a kid, I'm going to say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there were zero ads for psychotropic medication on television. Right. Now they practically have you self-diagnosing. Ask your doctor if Latuda is right for you. Maybe you can cop a new Attituda with Latuda. You know, <laughs> I mean, they just, and, and then they do like all the warnings in, in yes. the most soothing voice, you know, available, right? May cause complications, including fatality. Ask your physician if fatality is wrong for you. Um, you know, so, and it's just, gee, I wonder if fatality is wrong for me. Maybe I shouldn't take this. I don't, um, don't take Latuda if you're allergic to Latuda. How would I know if I never took Latuda? Right. Along with the laundry list of other potential side effects. Well, right. And so, you know, there's, uh, there, there's that aspect uh, to it as well. But I, I think the, um, I think that conflation and saying that, this is a gift. Look, human beings, uh, every cloud has a silver lining. That came way before behavior analysis and way before neurodivergence. Uh, that term is a silver lining term. Okay. It's looking at the cool side of autism. But right. the thing is, there are many sides of autism, as many parents will tell you, in the branch of autism that has been rebranded severe autism. And by the way, uh, folks listening, severe does not mean extremely awesome. Okay. That's not what it means. So if autism is awesome, then I guess severe autism means, oh my God, this is so awesome. Exceptionally great. Uh, yes. And here's the thing, people with the label, because I don't say people who are autistic. I say people first and I say people with the label because I've seen people have the label and then not have the label. And I've seen people not have the label and then have the label. So I just like to say to be safe, people with the label. Because if you could look inside their brain, you won't find the autism on a CAT scan or on an MRI. Sorry, people doesn't work that way. You It also won't turn up on a blood test or a DNA test. Oh, we got back the DNA test looks like your child's going to have autism, said no one ever. And if they ever do, then it will completely change what autism means. Meryl, do you find that terms like neurodivergence or anything that is trendy now, I guess, do you think that it's becoming a little bit too susceptible to suggestion, like the Latuda commercial? Um, uh, as far as, well, what I think it makes it easy because it is ill-defined, this is the example that I give. And I'm not doing this, uh, I, I'm not saying this as a slight to anyone who has severe problems, real right. problems that affect their life and stop them from living where they want to live and 
interacting with who they want to interact with. I said the other day in, I think, a different podcast or just a talk I was giving that I am not neurotypical. And I dare anyone to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I am. Like the level they use in a criminal trial. Prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I am, in fact, neurotypical. It's a paper dragon. You can't catch it. (laughs) You couldn't do it if you had a million attorneys. Right. Okay. It's like arguing how many how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Right. It's the same. It's the same argument. It's the same argument. Now you can't say this. You can't. I can't. I can't say this. I can't talk. I have no language. Well, I clearly can't say that. But see, I could say something like, "I'm not neurotypical. I'm neurodiverse. Um, I play the guitar and the piano." I didn't learn how to read music. I did it all through my ear and I can hear things in songs. Other people can't hear. I write multiple parts in the songs that I do and I can hear all the instruments in a song and I can reproduce them unless they're extremely fast. I can reproduce them all by memory. Everybody can't do that. I am neurologically and it's how fast my fingers can move, my dexterity. I am neurologically well above the norm for how people, the dexterity they have with their fingers. I guess that makes me neurodivergent because that part of my neurology mm-hmm. is above the norm. It diverts, right? Right. Then someone would say, Meryl, you don't have autism. And I'll say, I never said I had autism. I said I was neurodivergent. I said I was neurodivergent. Can you? Do you think that we could fall in and out of being neurodivergent then? Considering, one, it's not a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. And two, sure. there are times when we function uh, more in line with what is neurotypical versus yep. neurodivergent. Yep. Here's, here's what I say about the whole shit and shebang. <laughs> everything, is, everything is a matter I mean, uh, of degree. And so here's what I say. Look up anything you like in the DSM. Look up anything you like. doesn't really matter. Everybody's got a piece of it. Let me just give you a quick example. A few years ago, I looked up just so I could explain it to parents easily. And I thought, you know, what does like John Hopkins Medical Center say about it? So I looked up, what do they say on their autism page, like for parents to read or finding out about autism? So I, I looked at it. And here are the signs and symptoms. And I wrote them all down. And there was things like fascination with puzzles and mechanical things, um, difficulty understanding emotion, um, interest in repetitive kind of things. And then it was like easily given to aggression. And it was like this and it was this. And I'm like, holy shit, they just described 95% of my male friends. Correct. (laughs) It's like, no, if you looked at it, it is extreme manism. It occurs more in in males than females. It is extreme manism. I mean, most women can tell you men are not known for their ability to detect emotion. It's a biological trait in men versus women. Uh, Yes. Men are... are Men are just meant to look for things that move in the bushes. <laughs> and um, uh, there was a guy that did this funny, funny play called Defending the Caveman. And it was about those kinds of things. And it was like, men are not assholes. This is just what we, it's what a man is. They're hardwired that way. Uh, yeah, right. And now the thing is, if we took a mental health diagnosis, we, would, we wouldn't do this. And here's how we talk about people differently in their behavior. If I said something you didn't like, You'd go, man, Meryl's a real asshole, but you wouldn't say this. Meryl has asshole disorder, NOS. You see, 
Because what's happening to our country and our world is we've shifted from a description of what how people are to a description of what people have. And here's one of the problems. It's, it's the way that we see having is a concept. Now you can demonstrate it in the physical real world by giving someone an apple and saying, you have my apple now. And then you take it, you go, now I have the apple. Now that's the most literal sense of having. And you can have kidney stones. And that's also a literal sense. You could pass it and keep it and you could show it to someone. There's the source of my pain. Right there. (laughs) Now having a kidney stone is not the same as having high blood pressure. You see, if you have a kidney stone in your hand, somebody can come by and take it, right? Right. Oh my God, somebody took my kidney stone. Who's got it now? That guy there has kidney stones now. Man, it must hurt him like hell because it sure hurt me, okay? But now he's got my kidney stone. He has it. Now, if I have high blood pressure, somebody can't come by and take it. What happened to your high blood pressure? That guy took it. You better watch him. He's got high blood pressure now. He's at large. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. He's at large with my high blood pressure. That's a, Having high blood pressure is a different have. Now, at least you can measure it. But see, high blood pressure doesn't have a location in your body. Like your physician can't go, oh, we just got your CAT scan back. There's your high blood pressure right there. There's, right a, in the tie carotid. There's a tie up on the 401 leading from your carotid. Right. Uh, you know, oh, there's blood vessels all over cells all over the place. Um, and no, they don't do it like that. So at least there's measurement, right? But that's a different half. Now, having autism is even one more removed from having high blood pressure because they don't use a sphygmomanometer, say that three times fast, to, to <laughs> say how much autism you have. Now, they may administer the ADOS or some other kind of like, you know, assessment tool, right? But it's not the same as measuring your blood pressure. And, and so the thing is, having autism is a different thing. Here's the other weird thing about neurotypical and, and neurodiverse. When you, when I say I'm neurotypical, using that phrase, I'm trying to compare myself as a standard to a specific diagnostic area of autism ASD. And my question is this, why do I refer to myself, why would I, I don't, but why would I refer to myself as neurotypical when If I were referring to a subgroup of people with schizophrenia, I would not call myself hallucinotypical. If I were referring to a group of people suffering from clinical depression, Meryl, do you have depression? No, no, no. I'm sadness typical. I I feel like we're obscuring the truest reality of sickness and disability and illness. And we're shrugging it off as if it's no big deal. And I'm not sure how changing all of these norms to better fit a narrative that suits us other than gaining social clout, honestly. Uh, That's what a lot of it is. And here's the thing, as far as acceptance goes, okay. And saying like, I have this and you know, uh, nobody cares about quirkiness anymore. Right. Nobody cares about this anymore. It, 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 it just doesn't matter. And so, I mean, and if it does, it's for the tiniest group of people and then they don't matter. You know, it, it, nobody cares about quirkiness anymore. We're, we're, and nobody's trying to change quirkiness, right? And no one's trying to make people normal. Here's, here's what we're worried about. And here's what I'm, no one calls me into a classroom because someone, this is what I always tell people. When parents might ask me, Dr. Winston, are you an autism specialist? I say, I am a specialist in human behavior. 
and your child has lots of it. Okay. (laughs) And, (laughs) And no one calls me into a school and I say, what's the problem? And they say this, we have a kid with autism. So what's the problem? That's the problem, Dr. Winston. He has autism. Said no one ever. Never. I've, I've never heard anything remotely similar. No. People call me into school because somebody's biting somebody. And here's what I, here's what I say. It, it, it doesn't matter what you say they have because they don't really have it anyway. What right. ultimately matters is what they do and do not do. And this is all that matters. So here's the thing. I like, I had someone interrupt me in my talk who self-identified as autism. And I felt very proud because they also interrupted Tim Vollmer in his talk. And he's much more well-known than I am. So I felt like, damn, I got interrupted by the same person as Vollmer. And so, and he handed her, handled her quite nicely too. And we were both nice about it, even though she interrupted us multiple times. But one of the claims was, well, see, I have autism and I don't understand why people, and I don't know if she had autism or didn't, but that's how she identified. She had something, my camel come back on. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know why people are trying to change me and I should just be able to be the way I are and they should accept me as they are. And I'm like, look, you know, it, if who you are is if you're louder than normal or quieter than normal or more social than normal or less social than normal, right? That doesn't, that's fine. No one's trying to change that. However, if who you are is if someone accidentally bumps into you when you're going through a door in the store, if Mm -hmm. who you are is you automatically attack them, oh, we're going to try and change that one because now you're violating the rights of others. But here's the way I like to say it. If who you are, whatever it looks like, Mm -hmm. is not actively violating the rights of others, we don't give a shit anymore. We're worried about active shooters. This is 2022. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. That's all little shit now. People do not care about that so much. By the way, the more you label people, the more they're going to end up getting treated differently. I saw, just as a quick example... The, the child that had the label ESE student, special ed student, forget his individual diagnosis. He was in a general ed classroom and he had the label special ed, right? So the teacher told me, and, and this gets at labels and, and how it doesn't make people awesome. It, it puts them in a different category and opens them to bias. So the teacher said this, Meryl, I really don't want him in my classroom. He, he has behavior problems. You know, he interrupts things. And I go, well, can I just do an observation? And she goes, sure. I observed all the children. I observed him, the special ed child, and all the gen ed kids. And I took data on all of them. The gen ed kids were far more disruptive. Mm-hmm. One of them was actually hitting himself in the head with a toy in circle time. He was so bored, uh, but he was typically developing. Okay. Gen ed kid. Um, the other ones were blurting out answers. They were up and down out of their seat. They were messing with their peers. This kid wasn't. And I showed her the data on her kids and her face kind of fell because she realized she was singling him out as the problem. When I showed her, he was no more disruptive than any of your other children. Right. Why did she single him out? Because he was neurodivergent. He had a label. And and even if the label is awesome, even if the label means you're coolest ever, he still has a different label than everyone else. It doesn't matter. It still does its dirty work. 
The same as someone that's gifted. We're, if we go into a situation, like you said, with a label that almost puts us on a pedestal compared to others, it is a label nonetheless. Yes. And it, over the course of these last couple of years, with the glamorization and the sensationalization of anything that is a label, I personally feel like I've never noticed differences more than now versus when we felt the need to categorize everything into little boxes. I don't know and how as, you feel about that. And as far as you say the difference is more, what do you mean? Like how, what, what differences? I just want to be the sure. The differences in terms of leading a conversation or introducing ourselves with our diagnosis before we even say our name. Oh and yeah. The, I got the, a big, I got a big problem with that. What, you know, yes. the thing is that, that one, it's kind of a personal thing Two, It's technically a medical thing. So why don't you just introduce yourself with, Hey, I have irritable bowel syndrome. How are you? <laughs> Like uh, someone on LinkedIn, it said neurodivergent behavior analyst. Um, mm -hmm. uh, why isn't there someone that says schizophrenic behavior analyst, clinically right. depressed behavior analyst? Well, I know that there's I know there's clinically depressed behavior analysts. Sure. Okay, I was one of them for a little while. Okay, Absolutely. so. <laughs> But why would you put that as a title? Or why don't mm -hmm. you put any medical diagnosis? Why don't you put one that's embarrassing, right? Explosive mm -hmm. diarrhea behavior <laughs> analyst. I mean, that's, it's, I guess it's not cool sounding. Um, but, you know, this is, you're just a behavior analyst. And hopefully you're one that actually help people. Or maybe you're one that confuse people. So, you know, but I don't care what's in front of your name. I care, I care what, what, what you're talking about. Um, you know, um, <laughs> what if, if going off of this thread of thought that we're, that we're on right now with the adopting of terms, whether they be clinically diagnosed or self adopted essentially, and the conflating of awesomeness and acceptance, do you believe that there are any attempts to actually help these people that claim to be marginalized, or do you feel like there's more of an ulterior motive? Um, I think there's. Pro I think for some people, it is a power grab. It's I want to make other people say I'm sorry. I want to. I want to word police them. Um, and you get a lot of it. A lot of it is attention maintained. Uh, I think. And the thing is, and this has been a criticism too. I'm not the first one to level it. It, uh, that uh, the people that are making these claims and they know what autism is like, this, that, and the other, here's the problem. The ones who are now labeled severely autistic, technically, I've seen them, I know what the population is, they would never have, have qualified to the, to the classic diagnostic criteria for autism. They would have fallen under the class of developmentally delayed, mild, moderate, severe mental retardation, um, I, I know the population quite well, right? They got reclassified as severe autism for insurance billing. And I think it's a great idea. And I think they probably should have done it a long time ago. And I think it's a good way to work the system. But here's what I also think. It did not change who they are. And that leads me to the Matrix. What are, do you know what I'm going to talk about in the Matrix? Do you know the movie? I do. Have you I seen do. the movie? I've seen the movie. Okay, then I'm going to do, and the first one's the only one that counts. Okay. This is my take on mental illness. Okay. Keanu Reeves goes in to see the Oracle. And when he mm -hmm. goes in to see the Oracle for the first time, there's a bunch of little bald-headed Krishna kids with their little robes on. And, right. and, they're, and they're levitating shit. ABC blocks and stuff like this. And they're doing all, and this one little kid 
he says, and it's like little cute little British accent, right? He's got this spoon and Keanu Reeves looks at it and the spoon goes, and it just bends. Okay. <laughs> and, and then Keanu Reeves takes it and he's looking at it and he's like amazed. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know why he's amazed. He's already in the fucking matrix. And now he's amazed because the spoon is bending in the matrix. Anyway. So he's, he's amazed by this. And the little child says this, do not try and bend the spoon. <laughs> that would be impossible. only try to realize the truth the truth (laughs) that there is no spoon and that it is we who bend okay there is no mental illness there is no mental illness it is we who bend i knew Mm -hmm. a little girl who had autism Mm -hmm. and i worked with her father for a while and we were business partners for a little while on a bit of software and I did a couple of quick consults regarding her acquisition of a sign or her lack mm-hmm. of it. And she had autism. She had autism. She had autism. She had autism until she didn't hmm. until she had Rett syndrome. Okay. So, and, and she did have Rett syndrome. Once they made the diagnosis, I looked at her and I was like, Oh yeah, that makes I've sense. Seen that. And she was very syndromey and she mm-hmm. fit all the characteristics. Now here's my point. What happened to that spoon? Okay. Hmm. The, did she become unautistic? Well, no, she really never was by the proper diagnosis. And that's kind of my point for the people with severe autism. They may not be either. It doesn't really matter. Here's what matters. They have very small repertoires and they need the most help. And they will never, ever, 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 ever live independently. And they will never, ever, ever, ever live the lives that you and I live. And to me, the diagnoses are not as merely as important as the functional outcome. So the thing is, the person saying you all should do this and you all should do this, they have a full life and they have everything. Absolutely. They're not talking about the person who's been given the label um, severe autism. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, why don't you just accept that they can't do anything and why don't you just let them not mm-hmm. do anything? As an example, choice. I was in a place mm-hmm. in California. There's a client on a grassy knoll, an adult stemming with a DVD, glinting sunlight off of it, which is fine for three hours at his day training program. And when I asked the coordinator of the day training program, what's up with that? That guy's been there for like three hours. The government pays you money to do something with these folks get them engaged, get them something that's fun and, you know, uh, that they could maybe earn money or maybe they could do something or engage with people socially or what have you. And, oh, well, that's his choice. Oh, I see. So we're tying your inability to teach him something reasonable. We're going to use his choice as a shield so Mm -hmm. you can shield your own incompetence. Oh, fuck that this much. Yeah. Well, choice is becoming something that is being labeled as a form of ableism like well if you don't give him this amount of choice then that is you being an ableistic or whatever yeah yeah, no they've got it backwards you're being ableistic if you always give a choice because what what you're creating is the false perception here's the problem they're conflating two concepts again Mm -hmm. a child who's having difficulty and struggling and is stressed out with they're, con- they're conflating exposing a child to things they don't like, like limits, 
and right. conditions where there's no choice like us. Right. Uh, okay. We, we have plenty of conditions where there's zero choice. We have plenty of conditions where there's so much choice we're paralyzed. Right. It's a very broad range. Okay. We are, what did I say just before? You uh, said you were conflating um, limitations with- Oh yeah, with limitations, with cruelty. Yes. Okay. So, so let me explain a few things. I'm going to talk about Dr. Glenn Latham. Okay. Dr. Glenn Latham, and I knew him personally, and he wrote the book, The Power of Positive Parenting. Okay. Mm -hmm. He also wrote a book called Christ-like Parenting. He mm -hmm. was quite religious. I believe he was a Mormon. Okay. And he was easily the kindest, nicest, wish I had him as a grandpa person I ever met in my entire life. Okay. Um, and I knew him fairly well. Okay. Mm -hmm. So much so that when I cut my hair one time, because he didn't really approve of long hair on men, um, okay. when he saw that I cut my hair, he gave me a hug. But Aww. anyway, that was Glenn Latham. Um, he used punishment procedures. Sure. He did a procedure with his own son where he would take away the car keys for two weeks if his son came home after midnight. Mm -hmm. But here's what was special about Glenn. Glenn understood that you don't have to conflate punishment and meanness and cruelty. And he sure, sure shit punished his son. And his son even got pissed. Let me just tell it real quick. His son gets home after midnight and the first words out of Glenn's mouth. And Glenn's about to punish his ass by removing privileges. Let me be clear to everybody. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he comes home. No screaming. No angry faces. First words out of Glenn. I've heard him tell this story many times before he passed. Son, I'm glad you're home safely. And this is how Glenn talked. Son, I'm so glad you're home safely. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm glad you got the car back. Are you okay? Yes. I'm glad that's true. Now, um, you came home after midnight. It is 1230. And as agreed, if you're not home by midnight, right. you are, if you choose to be home after midnight, but I didn't choose, Pop. Uh, my friend was late and then I, I needed to give him a ride home and I needed to do all this. I understand. And, and, that, and that sounds reasonable, son. But as you know, if you're home after 12, which you are, you're mm -hmm. also choosing to give up the car keys for two weeks. So you can just leave them in the ashtray. I'm not choosing to give up anything. You're taking them away. Well, I understand how you feel that way, but you'll have the car back soon. And I'm looking forward to you getting your privileges back again really soon. Okay. It's like a now, typical negotiation tactic, that calm yeah. persistence. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is Glenn Latham delivering a punisher. So mm -hmm. let me explain this to everyone. He did not conflate, mash up, anger, coercion, mm -hmm. cruelty, belittlement mm -hmm. with punishment. See, if you did that, you'd do this. How many times have I told you you're not supposed to be back here? Do you have any idea what your mother and I went through? Because that was it. That was how I was raised. Sure. Okay. So let me Most be clear people. to everyone. Glenn used a punishment procedure called reinforcer removal. Glenn was kind during the entire interaction. His son was very angry and distressed and yelled at him. Now, by a lot of the zeitgeist going on now, if you do anything, no one says it this way, but this is, let me give you the major premise that no one's stating. Sure. If you do anything with a child that makes the child experience stress, anger, mm -hmm. crying, have a hissy fit, you're it's a traumatic. bad person and you're mm -hmm. incompetent. And what I call it is, it, it is, it is the um, malice incompetence model. And what it means is, um, if if you don't do things the way I think you should do them, I'm going to accuse you in a variety of ways of malice 
and or incompetence. Parents do it with schools. People do it with each other. It happens all the time. And what it means is, um, I think you're being like, let's take escape extinction as an example. Um, Escape extinction. One of the reasons people don't like it is not simply because it's not this. You stay in the chair, do your work until the work's done. But I don't want to. Well, I don't want to come into work, but I have to. Now do it and don't leave until you do. Now, if you did it under that condition and the kid just says, I don't want to, and doesn't cry and scream and they're not falling all over the place and there's not an emotional fallout, nobody really cares. But what people are upset about the most is they don't want to see emotional fallout in a child. They cannot fucking handle it. And the thing is, I do not like to see children upset at all. And I've seen my share of upset children. I also know this. If there's certain things that I don't do, there will be problems in the long term. And if I don't do this thing now, they will be upset. Let me give every parent who might be listening an example. You all do it. You all cause your children pain. You all cause your children to scream and suffer. And you all are okay with it because it's called medicine. And so when you take your child, I was terrified of getting injections. All right. First thing I wanted to know if I was sneezing was, do I have to go to the doctor? Because I wanted to know if I was getting a shot. Because to me, that was like a death sentence. But anyway, um, nobody gives, nobody bats an eyelash at that. And the physician does something that actually causes physical pain and causes children to scream and cry. And we all say this. I know it's upsetting to them, but it's for their own good. And they get a lollipop afterwards. I could say the same thing about escape extinction. Exactly. Okay. Now, the thing is, personally, I don't find it's necessary in most cases. But here's my point. And there's other things to do. There's going to be a variety of things we do, including this is some people even say this about reinforcement. Dr. Mike Perrone um, pointed this out very nicely in a, in a paper called The Aversive Properties of Positive Reinforcement. And to have a contingency where you earn, it's positive. You earn your reinforcer for doing your work. Guess what's not so positive? If you come to me before you've done your work and you ask your reinforcer, you ain't fucking getting it. Right. That's how life works. And so what, <laughs> what Michael said was, a, a, if there is a contingency, any reinforcer that is contingent on a response must be denied in its absence or you destroy the contingency. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I like to get shit before I'm supposed to. And sometimes I'll ask and sometimes I get it. Okay. <laughs> Everybody does this. So um, yeah, it's just, there's living. And this is what a lot of people can't accept. Here's the other unstated premise. I've never heard a parent say this, but I've seen parents and advocates act as though they were acting under this rule. And here's the rule. Children with special needs or labels or neurodivergent or whatever you want to say, got it, got the shit end of the stick at birth. They had a knock against them. They need extra services, for example. Okay. And every parent knows this. And here's the logic. And I understand it. It's emotional. And I understand it. Okay. It makes sense. And that is, they've suffered from the get-go. They should not suffer any further. Okay. And so they need to be cut slack. And they are cut slack on all kinds of things. And in fact, children are cut slack on things that adults aren't. That's why we have the age of 18. And that's why if you kill somebody when you're 15, different things happen than when you kill somebody when you're three or when you're 33. There's different rules that apply. Okay. And we do cut people slack. But here's the problem. 
When you cut them infinite slack, you create a special different world for them and they're not going to be able to function in our world. If you prosthetize their world, as Ogden Lindsley used to say, by making everything acceptable, well, if he hits you, just let him hit you. If he calls you a motherfucker, just let him call you a motherfucker and don't you try to ever out. fix it, right? Now, the thing mm -hmm. is, by the way, you should never tell a kid, don't say that, it's not nice. They know it's not nice, that's why they're saying it. Exactly. However, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't discourage cursing and encourage a replacement and teach them, hey, I curse too, but there's some places where you shouldn't. You might mm -hmm. not get the job interview. You might right. not get a date. You might get in trouble in court. So mm -hmm. here's where you can and here's where you can't curse, you know, or do something like you could do that, right? Sure. Um, so you get it? <laughs> I do. I do. Absolutely. I think, Meryl, do you think that some of this came out of the big movement towards child-led and the big movement towards removal of the adverse stimulus upon any sort of precursor behavior. Yeah, yeah, I think it comes with some of that. I think a lot of it is don't let them struggle. And here's what I say. I don't like this. I, uh, people are needlessly cruel. People, um, people expose people to punishment conditions that don't work, simply aggravate the child. It doesn't mean punishment is bad or unnecessary. Punishment is necessary to live, both as a natural process and as a society. We have a punishment-based society. Now, it uh, naturally, at first, we wouldn't use a lot of these things because people are missing skills. It's not a punishment issue. When you have enough skills and you're still motivated to do the wrong thing, at some point it is a punishment issue. And if people are going to live, here's my, my the thing I always say to parents. What are your expe expectations for the future for this human? If your expectations are they're going to live the same life as anybody else, you better get them used to how to respond to punishers because that means you want them to be a functioning member of society. And if you're going to be a functioning member of society, you could be as quirky as you like, but you can't, punk, you can't knock people's teeth out, okay, without going to jail or having some other big consequence. So, you know, that, that's really the main thing. And you will have to learn to tolerate things. You will have to learn to tolerate things you don't like. And the thing is, will people give you some slack because of a condition? Yes, but you won't have infinite forgiveness and do-overs. You can't run around murdering people because you have special needs, you know, and everybody knows this at one level, but no one knows where to draw the line. And that's the other problem. Like, so where do we draw the line of, I'll give you an example. We talk about this. Sure. Um, when I talk about excessive antecedent manipulations, I talk about eliminating aversives as an antecedent manipulation. Now, if you're in a tight bind, I will make unreasonable manipulations and get rid of everything temporarily when someone is very dangerous. As an example, Marilee doesn't like the word hello. And this happened once. Nobody's fucking says hello. Everybody says, how's it hanging? Or say, what's up? Okay. Do you understand? Do you understand? Yes. That's not sustainable. It's completely unrealistic. We cannot right. force the entire world to bend right. to our will just to make sure that this person doesn't get upset. Here's what's happened. No one wants to go into the gray areas because yeah. to go into the gray areas, you have to use your gray matter. Your critical and no thinking. One, and no one wants to use that. Mm -hmm. So to go into the gray areas, you have to make a judgment call. Let me give you an example. I, I do it this way. I call it like the grid of acceptability. So as an example, most of the population that we work with 
they demonstrate unacceptable behaviors in response to reasonable situations. Example, I'm sorry, James, but we ran out of orange juice. Would you like apple juice punched in the face? Mm -hmm. That would be an example of an unacceptable response to a very reasonable situation. So in that case, you don't say, well, clearly, Meryl, he has special needs. You have to have endless orange juice. Oh, fuck that this much. Again, <laughs> no. Um, he he starts to eye gouge whenever he hears somebody cough. Oh, well, that's it. We got to give his classmates a case of Robitussin. Okay? <laughs> no one can cough. No one can fucking cough. He's got to go to the no coughing school. Okay? Uh, if you ever coughed, you can't get in. And mm-hmm. if you do cough, you're expelled. Okay, mm-hmm. no, it's not a peanut allergy where you can't bring, you know, we can manage to not bring peanuts in for a day or on the plane or something like that, but no coughing for the whole semester. So no, you're going to have to change. You're going to have to learn how to handle coughing. Why? If you want to live anything close to a normal life, you're going to be around humans who cough. So this is, this is how we think these things through. And how about this? He really hates it. If there's polar bears, it causes him to have behaviors. I think we can work around that. Yeah. Yeah. He should well, not go to the polar bear exhibit. We're yeah. not even going to give him a fucking Klondike bar because it's got a picture of a polar bear on it. Okay. We're, we got this. We got this. Mm-hmm. You can do that because you don't run into those things that often. But if sure. it's an everyday thing that you're likely to run into, if you're going to be a functioning independent member of society, then gee, maybe you might have to learn to tolerate a couple of things. It feels a lot more self-serving for clinicians versus their clients because me, I've never been told by any single client or family that what I was doing was uh, harmful or abusive or traumatizing. Never, or even remotely close. When you ask people, has a client ever actually told you that removing something that they really enjoyed was aversive? Did they tell you that? And oftentimes the answer is no. It's more like I just heard a story about it. The other thing is, is there are uh, articles on this. One of them is in Ennio Sapani's book, Punishment on Trial. And Matsukori just told me of another article where they, they polled the kids on the procedures. The kids, in many instances, preferred the punishment contingency. Yes. And it wasn't a giant punisher. It was a mild punisher, like a point loss, like the same ones we get exposed to. Because the kids said, like, it felt like it kept them in line better, you know, like, and that they would ultimately get what they wanted and be more successful. And what they were kind of pointing to was a need for a suppressive element in the environment that helped them because their self-control wasn't at that level. And the thing is, this is the way laws work. So as an example, there's three groups of people when it comes to the law. Those who didn't need the law because they were going to obey it anyway, like not murdering. I don't murder people all the time. I don't need the law for that. Two, people on the fence. Man, I really want to murder. But that pesky law about murder, (laughs) damn it. Okay, And that's that's a smaller group of people than the group of people who would never murder anyway. And then the smallest group of people, they're all busy murdering. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you could, you could get those three groups regarding any rule. Okay. And so there's going to be rules that uh, no matter what your label is, you're not, you really don't want to follow it. You're going to have to follow it. You want to be in society. Mm -hmm. Here's one of the things. If you, if you create a non-society, mm-hmm. 
that has completely different rules from regular society. And by the way, it's fine to create prosthetic environments. You have to. Sure. That's why we don't punch kids in the face who go, you're a motherfucker. You little bastard. I'll show you. Now, by the way, some staff do and they get fired um, because they can't they can't control themselves and they shouldn't be working with these pop right, ladies. So. Yep. Uh, right. But the point is, we don't punch them in the face. Um, I like to tell the story. A client walked up to me to group home one time in Alabama mm -hmm. and uh, he called me Merle because in Alabama, my, my name came back Merle, no matter Merle. how I said it. So I stopped, you know, it's Merrill. Oh, hey, Merle. I just stopped. But anyway, just it comes out and goes, hey, Merle, I learned something today. What did you learn, Gene? I learned that clients can hit staff, but staff can't hit clients. And I go, Eugene, that's wrong. Staff mm -hmm. can hit clients. The only problem is we'll get fired. Right, right. We're not supposed to hit clients back. You're right. But there's no invisible barrier between you and a staff member. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't hit you back, but I can't speak for every person you'll work with, Gene. Mm -hmm. you know, and so it was a little reality check for him. And so mm -hmm. the thing is, in some, we do create these prosthetic environments. What I was telling you, Gene, is, is that, Gene, this mm -hmm. is a prosthetic environment. We're not supposed to. But somebody could lose their shit if they feel threatened and they might hit you. Right. You know, so the thing is that we do want a prosthetic environment initially because it will it will harm the children if we treated them like anybody else. Like sure, sure. that's why we don't send four-year-olds to prison when they bite us. I got <laughs> bitten by a four-year-old once. I didn't take his little ass to court. I'll see you in court, you little bastard. Okay. No, who would do? No, said right. no one ever. Right. Okay. Why? Because he's just four. We mm -hmm. have, we, we prosthetize things. We, we don't press charges. We don't hit them back. Okay. And there's many, many reasons why we don't. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, at some point, if they're going to go function in the real world, they have to be prepped for the real world. They have mm -hmm. to learn how to respond to being overtly punished. Like if a police officer says, stop, mm -hmm. sir, I need you to step back. You probably need to do that. There you could stop be problems. You step it. back. Yes. Right. It, I have an extreme example here. Um, the show Squid Game. <laughs> oh, I've Where, never watched that, but I know about it. Okay. Okay. So it's these deadly childhood games and you could literally die with each game. If we're going back to the, the power of uh, a punishment as a tool, essentially, People were far more motivated by the fact that they could lose their life versus fifty billion dollars. Well, yeah, right, <laughs> right, and that's and that's like um, uh, Jack Michael said. You know, he used to say, and it's not, it's not, hooray, let's use a versus. But Jack Michael said, a versus right. make the world go round. And the reason they is do. they're not dependent on any current deprivational state. And I, mm -hmm. I was giving a talk the other day, and I was showing that. One of the reasons why we have things like incarceration and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and um, everybody doesn't give a shit about fines. Right. Very, the billionaires don't care about fines. You know what billionaires care about? They care about being incarcerated. Right. They really would rather not live in a jail cell. Mm -hmm. They really, really, really don't want that. So, you know, this is these things are part of society. And, mm -hmm. um, Punishers are part of life. They're needed. Uh, mm -hmm. Unpleasantry is part of life. Getting inoculations. You ever seen a kid get his hair cut for the first time? They scream bloody murder. Pretty brutal. Okay? Why is not anyone uh, speaking out against barbers and their barbarous efforts? Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, 
Maybe they shouldn't call it haircuts, and that's why the kid freaks out because he hears cut. He knows what a cut is. He's seen scissors. By the way, parents, if you're listening, don't tell your child you're taking them to get a haircut. Say, I'm taking you to get your hair styled because styles <laughs> never hurt anyone. Cuts mm-hmm. make you bleed. Okay? <laughs> so kids are not stupid. Don't use that word. Okay. But um, but no, seriously, um, uh, using the, the common vernacular, somebody would say, oh, my child was traumatized by his first haircut. No, he fucking wasn't. He was not. He was upset. He, he was upset. Mm-hmm. He was upset. You might even say scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I said that at the FABA conference the other day. I said, guys, you know a word that hasn't been used a lot, a phrase that hasn't been used a lot, that's actually a phrase and it means something and it actually happens to people? Scared shitless. And I mm-hmm. did this. I go, hey, have any of you ever been scared shitless? <laughs> like, like a whole bunch of people raise their hands. And I go, oh my God, me too. <laughs> and, and it's just like, and I said, but nobody says this anymore. And they it's don't. just like, you don't get traumatized because you got scared shitless. Sometimes you just get scared shitless. Right. And you go on with life. My concern with this, Meryl, is that if the default is becoming I'm traumatized or I'm distressed, therefore I'm traumatized. I am scared shitless, therefore, therefore I am, yeah. I am forever <laughs> adversely affected. Then what do we do? I'll tell you. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it's called the new reality. So you've seen the movie yeah. The Incredibles. Yes. <laughs> so it's what Syndrome said when he wanted to give everyone superpowers. When everyone is super, mm-hmm. no one will be. When everyone has right. trauma, no one will. When everyone is neurodivergent, no one Nobody will be. Is. And the reason is you're creating a new baseline. Mm-hmm. You're creating a new base. Somebody said it in a talk the other day. Well, we should just we should just assume mm-hmm. everyone has trauma. Okay, let no. me give you a medical model one on that. You I, everyone you know, every day is exposed to what are known as carcinogens. Every fucking day, every day of your life, you and I, every time you breathe in and out, every time you walk outside, Mm -hmm. you are being brought into contact with what are known as carcinogens. Everybody has them in them. So Mm -hmm. because everybody has them in them, we should just assume that everybody has cancer. And not only should we assume that everyone has cancer, we should treat them as though they have cancer. I'm so sorry. And we also should treat them for mm-hmm. cancer. cancer. Yes. Not that treat them like you mentioned this as this glamorized so, thing. And now we're going to talk about cancer-informed. Okay? Yes. Now you're cancer-informed. Trauma-informed has more bullshit behind it. I can't believe because what they do is they talk a lot about mm-hmm. being uh, considerate and looking into people's history. All right, this is the most trauma-informed. Look in the DSM, see what the definition of PTSD is. Mm -hmm. Look at the definition and the qualifying criteria for all of the anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. And and then look at the animal literature on how they study PTSD in rats and how they have very clear protocols on what the trauma stimulus is, what some people will call the sentinel event. Mm -hmm. And it sure as shit isn't a haircut, people. Okay, it is not. It is not. And the other thing is, is that even if the Sentinel event is mm-hmm. horrific, mm-hmm. war, combat, mm-hmm. all combat veterans do not come back with PTSD. Many of them only have what is known as acute stress disorder, which mm-hmm. many people get, like after the Twin Towers went down, mm-hmm. presumably hundreds of thousands of people had acute stress disorder, which is clears in a couple of weeks, right? Sure. The yeah. point being that even if something so severe as mm-hmm. war 
is not 100% homogeneous in producing PTSD and all of those exposed to it. What it says is there's much more going on and that trauma, although the probability of PTSD increases as the sentinel event approaches things like rape, dismemberment, almost dying, war, airplane crashes, hurricanes. Mm -hmm. As you approach those kinds of sentinel events, Yes, Mm -hmm. the probability of PTSD developing increases, sure. But Mm -hmm. even with those events, Mm -hmm. everyone does not develop it. And they have what what are known as protective factors, which decrease the probability that you will become traumatized long-term. And then resilience factors, which is how you bounce back where others don't. So if people knew about all this stuff, then they'd understand how um, offensive, if you want to talk about being offended, it is to someone whose life has been turned upside down by a series of sentinel events. Um, How about uh, domestic abuse, okay, where their life has been kind of destroyed and they have to rebuild it and they have to go to therapy for years, Okay. I, yeah, I, uh, I, it's funny. I just, I, the podcast, that episode that dropped today, we talked, I talked about all of these things oh. and it, it's, it's so pervasive now to call even the everyday nuisances traumatic and it takes away micro trauma, micro trauma, micro trauma or a microaggression or whatever diluted oh, oh, term. Oh, 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 by the way, <laughs> microaggression conflates aggression and yes. um, bias. No violence see, there. Well, it's very no, misleading. Is, if it's micro, if micro, if it's microaggression, mm-hmm. it can't turn into racism. When you get larger, it would have to be macroaggression. So what right. you're doing is you're jumping concepts. It's mm-hmm. racism at the top level. Mm-hmm. It's microaggression at a lower level, or one mm-hmm. of the isms at the top level, mm-hmm. and then it flips concepts to a concept called aggression. Mm-hmm. You can have discrimination against another race and zero aggression. This is your typical concept creep. Yes. Yeah. And but what they're doing is they're they're conflating them and they're flipping them when they go to the diminutive, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like saying, well, I'm gonna do like I'm gonna call something like aggression mm-hmm. and the smaller version, I'm gonna call micro fairy tale. Uh, you know, it's just like what? But that has nothing to do with aggression. Yeah, and aggression right. doesn't necessarily have anything to do with racism. Right. It's discrimination. Mm-hmm. Now you could have Racism with aggression, racism right. without aggression. But mm-hmm. when you call it a microaggression, what you're trying to do is you're trying to, it's actually what it's known as is a slight. A slight. So if you, if I smile at the white cashier mm-hmm. and I make no eye contact with the black bag checker in an example, mm-hmm. that would be called a microaggression. Sure. Now I would call it rudeness slighting the person because I thought they had a lesser station. I would not say, did you see the aggressive act that that man did? Mm -hmm. What act? Did you see that aggression? Mm -hmm. It was small, but did you see it? What aggression? Well, he didn't look at that gentleman. He only looked at the woman. Did you see that act of aggression? Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, No one would know what the fuck you're talking about because it wasn't aggression. It was a slight. It was a rudeness. It's along the same lines as this idea that speech is violence. Speech can incite violence. Speech can... Any stimulus stimulus can cause a violent act. Absolutely. (laughs) But to actually state that speech in and of itself and the recipient of speech is harmed by this speech physically... 
to, per- uh, to yeah. actually see that as violence. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of things, and there's phrases that are used to indicate signs of damage that have never been demonstrated. Like you shouldn't say that, Kayla, because that perpetuates this. Right. And when you say it perpetuates, that is theoretical. And what you're saying is. People were about to let this go, Kayla, but now that you said it again, God damn it, we're in for another 20 years of this, bitch. Um, so that has never been demonstrated. Never. I got severely criticized because the original title of my talk was Antecedent Manipulations of Behavior Analysts Crack Cocaine. And I changed it to Deep Fried Twinkie. Which is, uh, and the reason I use crack cocaine is because it was particularly insidious and dangerous because mm-hmm. it provided a cheap high. And I got criticized because they said, Meryl, that disproportionately affected African-Americans. And now you're perpetuating uh, the the stereotype that African-Americans love crack or use crack. And I'm like, what the actual fuck are you talking this about? Straw manning drives and, me insane. And, and, and when I, when I said, bring this up to the few black friends that I have, they said, what the fuck? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, come on now. We got bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I did not endanger black people or, you know, get, keep them from getting jobs because I made a reference to crack cocaine and how right, insidious right. it was and how we use antecedent manipulations like it's a drug and how mm-hmm. it's dangerous and how it's a cheap high. But on the long term, it's bad for you. And I thought mm-hmm. it was a beautiful analogy. And then somebody fucked it up with their social justice. Um, but any, anyway, it's just like, yeah, I mean, everything is six degrees away from racism. If you look hard enough, sure. Mm-hmm. You could find it anywhere. It's a confirmation bias. It's like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. You could get there from anywhere, you know? Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, so. Meryl, as we, uh, as we wrap up here, I have a, probably a loaded question <laughs> to end on, but. I will have an explosive answer. <laughs> I can't wait for it. I better prepare myself. I'm I'm feeling a little bit triggered right now. So just that, thank you for that trigger warning. You are welcome. <laughs> what implications does this have for clinicians and what efforts can we make to try to bring us back to a place of critical thinking versus blindly conforming? Um, I think that, you know, the risk it runs is obfuscation, making things just unclear as mm-hmm. to what's going on on and purpose. That what it, what it is leading to. Look, I think I understand what motivates some of it. And what motivates some of it is we would like to be liked. Okay. Of course. You know, Oh, I see your child has behavior problems. Can I be your friend? Uh, okay, so you know that's kind of we're we're trying we're trying to do that, right? <laughs> and okay. and and so to be your friend, not yeah. only will I talk the talk you want to talk, but I'm going to I'm going to adopt your reinforcers and aversives, and I don't mm-hmm. know if that's necessary or good. Because a lot of people who are not behavior analysts have some different reinforcers and aversives than we do. And um, what we're trying to do is hook them into ours. Like, here's one of our reinforcers, data. Mm -hmm. And so we try to, we don't try to, we don't try to get along with them by saying, yeah, you're right. Data blows. Who needs data? Um, You know, um, we'll just, if it feels good, we're going to do it. Okay. Right. Right. That uh, nobody's proposing to do these kinds of things. So, you know, I, uh, I, I think that we do want them to like us, but mm-hmm. uh, again, in the gray areas, you have to use your gray matter. So the thing is, I want people to like me as well, but mm-hmm. not at the expense of agreeing to something 
that I think is fundamentally flawed and right. could cause some confusion. And I just Absolutely. do it at the outset. And I'm like, look, it's not just being liked as a behavior analyst. It's your own integrity as a human. Like some people will not like you. And so right. you're like, am, do I just be who I am and try to be honest and try to be reasonable and hope they like me? Mm -hmm. Or do I try to change who I am in a fundamental way so they'll like me? And right. I've done that before. And the outcome's not good for me. It just builds resentment. Yes. And so the thing is, I think people should be who they are if they know who they are as a behavior analyst. Now, me, I know who I am as a behavior analyst. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, all of the new stuff that's going around and neurodivergent and all this, I don't subscribe to those magazines. Okay. You know, they can read them if they like. I don't tell them what magazines to read, but I don't have a subscription to any of them. And, and, and the thing is, I think it would be good to bring us back to behavior. So again, neurodivergence, that's not behavior. That's not behavior. That's, that's theoretical about you're doing what you're doing because your neuron goes a different direction or you've got more of them or you've got few of them or your hippocampus is two microns to the right. I mean, good I, safety I, net. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I think that if we just focused on what are the real issues, what are the real problems? And the real problems, like at the places I go, are problems of aggression, are problems of people hurting themselves, are problems of people destroying public property. You know, the other kinds of things, I don't get called in. Somebody's making an odd noise. Somebody thinks something that's weird. I get things like this kid's threatening to bring a knife into school. Okay. And it's just, those are the things that are real, you know, and that, and that don't change. And the thing is, everyone has a different idea of what autism is. Everyone has a different idea of what neurodiverse is. Okay. Everybody has the same idea of what getting punched in the face feels like. And the thing is, and everybody can agree, yeah, they were punched in the face. Do you think they were punched in the face? No, I think they were kissed lightly on the cheek, said nobody. We right. can go with the things that we can agree on, right, and, and focus on those. The rest, what we're going to call people and what we attribute things to, you know, a lot. I think it's a lot less important. And what's important is, um, and I'll just put it this way, whose rights are getting violated? And then- Whose, right, whose future rights are at risk because they continue to violate the rights of others. And when I look at that, all the diagnoses for me disappear. Falls away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they all fall away. It's just like, are your rights being violated because people are treating you differently? Like the kid in the jet ed class, right? Are people treating you differently because you have a label, right? And are you violating the rights of others? And are you doing it in a manner that's going to further violate your rights later. And I, I think it all comes down to this. And also what people believe are child's rights. You know, kids don't have the right to have a cookie. That's not a right. That's not an inalienable right. That's not in the constitution. It's a want. It's a want. <laughs> At best. Right. So, um, yeah, so people confuse a lot of things, but, and conflate a lot of things. I, I, I think that as behavior analysts, um, concepts are useful. And we have to use them because they're a, they're a bad version of the true state of nature, as Jim Johnson used to call it, the true state of nature. Concepts poorly represent what actually happens, but we need them to talk with each other. However, th they could be misused so badly. And that's what's happening now. People are weaponizing them. People are conflating them to control people. Um, like concepts like uh, somebody who is struggling and who is upset and abuse. 
everyone uh, conflating stress with trauma. Okay. Oh, did you see he was crying and didn't want to do that? Conflation. And what it really means is, well, the reason people do it is because they need a justification. If I just say to you, I don't want you to do anything that makes the child cry, okay? People would look at you like, what? What do you mean? Why? <laughs> so what they do is they take things that they have seen that made children cry. And they said, if you do those procedures, you're not good, right? Because they can't say, stop being mean. But what they're doing is, is they're conflating meanness and now procedures that they have seen made children cry. So any procedure that made a child cry, if you're using it, you are mean. Uh, so that's, this is kind of the things that are happening. Or how about this? Compassionate. Be a compassionate behavior analyst. That implies that if you don't have that in front, you're automatically not compassionate. Here's the other thing. There's also an implication that if you use certain procedures, you will be given the epithet of compassionate. If you use other procedures, we will take that away. We'll strip okay? it really quickly. We'll strip How it. quickly we abandon science in the name of wanting to fall under a right. certain narrative. Right. Like Glenn Latham was is the most compassionate person I ever met. He mm -hmm. punished his son compassionately. Mm -hmm. He even said, son, it must be hard losing the car for two weeks. Don't worry. <laughs> You'll get it back soon. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he was compassionate and empathetic and punished his ass. <laughs> and see, here's the problem. People can't make it fit. And mm -hmm. his son was angry. His mm -hmm. son was angry and upset and stormed off. Glenn made his own son angry and upset and made him storm off because he was so mean and, and took away the car keys. How dare okay? he? He may have even traumatized him. Okay. Uh, and that's how people would describe it now. And, and what I'm saying is that's like gaslighting at the highest level. Glenn was the kindest person I'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. And he used a punishment procedure and he used it well, and there was nothing wrong with it. And if everyone used it that way, it would be a better world. Um, you know, but they don't, they're dicks about it. So, you know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but it's, it's Agreed. been fun. It's been fun, Meryl. You know what? Two two realities or mul thousands of realities or, or interpretations of it can yep. coexist. Yes. And I appreciate actually having this conversation. As you can imagine, it's been very difficult for me to have these conversations with people. So I appreciate you. Anytime. I appreciate you as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, we are heading out. Leave us a review. Me and Meryl will not be harmed if you disapprove of this episode. See you next time. <laughs>